okay, well, we started and we're just basically we're doing an impromptu podcast to talk about the recent um, events pertaining to gun violence in particular in the Asian community in California, right? Yeah, I would say that's a good summary. All right. Do you want to introduce yourself, Barry? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I should say who I am. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name is Barrett Holmes Pittner, founder, philosopher in chief of the Sustainable Culture Lab. And I wrote a book called The Crime Without a Name, Ethnocide and the Erasure of Culture in America. You know, thumbs up. Excellent placement behind you, by the way, as background. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yourself uh, now, Luna? I'll introduce myself. Yeah, I'm Luna. What is my official title? Volunteer with the Sustainable Culture Lab, social media person. Yeah, you're just, you're, you're Luna, you know, you yeah. are the title. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Um, so Barrett, I've been seeing a lot of conversation online because I, you know, my day job is social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. Fuck that platform. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious, what have you been seeing on socials or just like what kinds of conversations have you been having about this moment, right? Because, you know, on Sunday we celebrated Lunar New Year. There was the shooting in Monterey Park. The shooter was at large for a large majority of the day. And then, you know, yesterday, seven Chinese farm workers um, were also murdered. So it's a lot to handle. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the conversation that there I see online or even in the media, uh, you know, television and whatnot, is like the U.S. is accustomed to having conversations about race. And so when there's a shooting in the Asian-American community, more often than not, the anticipation is that it's somebody that's not Asian who had like did the shooting. And so it becomes like this real simple kind of racialized conversation of, you know, someone of this race doesn't like somebody of that race and that's the shooting. And it's really linear and simple. And that's just kind of like how we're accustomed to talking about, you know, terror that befalls minorities in the U S. Um, but these two shootings are different. Like they're both conducted by older Asian men. And so now there seems to be a bit of a, I don't think people really are confident about how to have the conversation. And so the conversation still mm-hmm. is quite similar to we have to make sure that these attacks don't happen to Asian Americans and frankly, Americans in general. But since they can't have that simple, like racialized conversation of uh, the conversations now shifting to like just the, the number of, of attacks that have happened in the U S in this month and so it becomes try to be like a greater conversation about about gun violence but we know that that conversation is quite limited because the expectation is that you know the republican party won't do anything and the supreme court clearly has a stance that you know people having access to to guns and deadly weapons is an extension of freedom and you know so it's kind of one conversation's basically like confusion because we're used to having conversations about race and not one about culture. And the other one's a conversation that like people have a, a hope that change will happen while also kind of acknowledging that there's a, a certain futility in the endeavor. Yeah. 
Yeah, I kind of like how you framed it, right? Like, we need to have two separate conversations about this, right, in terms of expanding the conversation from race to one about culture. Why is it that we face, deal with, and also maybe don't even have the opportunity to properly mourn and grieve these instances of tragic, you know, violence? And, I mean, you talk about it a lot in your book, that we're using the wrong terminology here and we have to expand right our language to better understand the circumstances that we're in how about you talk to us a little bit more about ethnocide and how can we use ethnocide to explain these moments so so yeah so first off by knowing about ethnocide and ethnocide is the the erasure of people's culture while keeping the people, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the foundational action of that, I'd say, in the U.S. was the transatlantic slave trade, where there is an explicit agenda of ethnocide, where ethnocide wasn't like mixed in with genocide or other types of terror. It was flat out the goal is to take African people, destroy their culture, keep the people, and then build a society in the Americas based on that continual oppression while making sure the people remain, you know, it, what there wasn't a goal of living in the absence of black people. Like it was an intentional goal of living with black people, or African people here. And then you oppress them by perpetually destroying culture. And so mm-hmm. with this foundational aspect to American life, clearly ethnocide will bleed into so many facets of our existence where many people will view the destruction of culture as just like a natural byproduct of being American. And so then you start having conversations that lack even the idea that culture exists or culture is something that's not just something that rich people get when they have the money to purchase culture, such as going to the theater or or whatnot. And so we have these conversations about race because we don't understand that you could have a conversation about culture. And so when you come to the U.S. and you kind of get indoctrinated with ethnocidal ideas, you can become prone to expressing ethnocide regardless of your race. So, you know, the, there is going to become a narrative of destroying something, destroying someone's culture, someone's the, 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 the safety of a community, shattering communities will be something that is beneficial or a just natural expression of living here. And if the society also articulates that having weapons of destruction is an extension of freedom, well, now you're going to use this American notion of freedom to destroy culture, which could even be your own culture. And if you live in a place where the the, the rhetoric, the narrative is that that's, a natural thing that's going to occur or it's encouraged or socially acceptable, then you're going to be more prone to doing it. And so, you know, for these, you know, Asian men who attack their own community, you know, one of the narratives that's coming out is that a, a lot of the, um, the, the mass, the, the gun violence attacks that are happening this year and last year, they're finding that it's kind of mm-hmm. like people like, inflicting petty grievances like they're mad at somebody or they're mad at some place and so they're going to go in there and shoot the whole place up like that 
cultural norm that people feel that if they're mad at something, they're empowered to go in there and just terrorize people. That's clearly an extension of ethnocide. There's not an ex- like an explicit agenda of of wiping out a whole group of people and living in the absence. It's no, I'm gonna shatter the security, the safety, the that is like an integral part of creating culture. I'm gonna shatter that, and that will make me feel better. Like that's clearly an expression of ethnocide. Right, and I mean, I remember what was it now? Two years ago with the Atlanta spa shooting, um, we talked briefly about that as well and just how that's also, you know, an extension of ethnocide. This man felt empowered. He felt like it, he was entitled to basically rob these spa workers of their livelihoods um, because he just felt wronged, you know, and he... I mean, terrorized their culture, took away an aspect of culture in Atlanta. Um, and I, I like this framing of ethnocide because, I mean, you know, I, I now teach a, just a one course in a high school um, on Asian American cultures and history. And when we've talked about and these, you know, these high schoolers are mostly seniors. So we have talked about a, the building of the racial hierarchy, right? Um, the modern minority myth and how Asians were used as the epitome of like a quote unquote model minority to pit communities of color against each other and to also even pit themselves against white folks as well. But I mean, having this framework of ethnocide, right? It encourages my students to kind of look at this, not just through like a race problem or like a problem of racism, but like a cultural issue. And I think it helps them look towards other solutions, right? Because, I mean, if I were to just ask them, like, how would you deconstruct the racial hierarchy? I mean, they're like, we just need to, you know, tear it down. But then there's kind of no aftermath, right? There's no, like, but what happens next? What happens after we tear down the racial hierarchy, you know? Like, what happens when that system has been obliterated, but it was also the founding of this country, too? Right, and it's it's also... Like if you think of it linguistically, if you only speak the language that derives from the culture that legitimize this racial hierarchy, you know, if that, that's the language you speak, not only, but when you're in the U.S., you primarily you're going to speak English, American English. So the language you have to describe the world and the structures that are created all come from this linguistic perspective. And so if the goal is to destroy the problem, you then have to figure out how to speak the solution. And exactly. if you haven't already sp- spent any, if you haven't spent time cultivating the language of the solution, once you destroy the problem, you'll just be left speechless. You won't know how to articulate what you want to do left. You can't, it can't just be destroying that or abolishing it. There has to be the language that you want to speak after the problem doesn't exist so that you can articulate the solution. And so like, I think for the Asian community and you know, clearly I'm not Asian, but I think that continent, there's a lot of cultures. There's just so many cultures. And when Asian people come to the U S they're more inclined to associate with people from that culture that they come from 
in Asia, but then as they're here for a longer amount of time and they are regarded as Asian, like this monolithic cultural right. culture that's from a gigantic continent, they then start interacting with each other as Asian because like the abuse and, you know, classifications that they face make it so that they have to like come together. But that right. culture is the thing that's first, you know, once they're here mm -hmm. for a long time, that culture kind of starts fading away and these racial identities become even more apparent. And now they're having a conversation about getting rid of the racial identities and want a racial problems, not identity per se, but like the, the problems that right. Asians face collectively. And the solution is culture. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's so many different ways of Asian American, like immigration, but there's a proximity to that culture that a lot of other immigrant groups don't have to the same extent, I'd say, because there's just, you know, a lot of people are first generation, second generation, and the cultures are so distinct from European cultures that, like, it's easy to continue them because it's not like it's harder for them to meld with some European thing and say, ah, yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. Like, actually, they're vastly different things, you know? Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think that that nuance has been really missing, right, from the news, from coverage, on any sort of tragic happening with the Asian American community. You know, like you said, there's just so many cultures, so many different identities that folks hold in Asia. The identity of being Asian isn't necessarily important to them, right? Their cultural identities, their upbringings, their, you know, religious identities, those may be more important to them. Their family name, families, <laughs> household names, things like that are way more important to them. So coming to the U.S. where there's this made-up <laughs> system of identifiers, you know, that's like totally false and has really no no scientific claim, no basis. It's just rooted in oppressing people and keeping them oppressed, right? And ensuring that their cultural identities are oppressed and erased on purpose. I mean, I think that's why a lot of Asian Americans kind of struggle with coming to terms with like who they are in the U.S. and like what, what, how, how do they, how are they positioned, right? In, in this like made up false racial hierarchy. Right. And like, the the hierarchy this race these racial classifications are just so shallow because they're just aesthetics that's all we're talking about yeah. like you just look a particular way and so now right. you're clumped into a whole continent and that's it there's it's a it's an aesthetic based identifier that's devoid of culture you know it's just aesthetics exactly the culture is something that is negated it doesn't exist it's not a calculation in this American identity that's just aesthetics. And so like, again, like when you have a culture that champions ethnocide and the destruction of the culture of the other, you know, if the group of people who are actively trying to destroy another group's culture, like they're not going to be creating culture themselves either. It's going to be like a whole way of life that exists to destroy culture. And so therefore you'll create classifications from 
that have nothing to do with culture because you're trying to destroy it. So they'll just be these really simplistic, shallow, aesthetic classifications, Asian, black, white, real simple. And so when we're trying to have these complex conversations about why are, why are these shootings happening? How could an Asian person go in and shoot a bunch of Asian people? If all you know how to say are these really simplistic, shallow, aesthetic-based concepts to define people, you're not going to get any solutions because you don't have the language or the frameworks to right. actually ask the proper questions. You're just going to ask really, really shallow questions and have shallow discourse fully convinced right. that they're really deep. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think, I mean, that resonates right now in this moment in time. <laughs> yeah. It's so like that the conversations are super shallow. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the conversation right now that they, we don't know how to articulate. That's why we're having these other conversations such as like the number of gun violence attacks that have happened, you know, other things, other conversations, but we're not really able to say, why would an Asian person do this to other Asian people? Because our racial idea is like another racial group will attack the other group. Like that's all we can think about because it's like an us versus them racially divided thing. Well, right. the reason it would happen is if you live in a place that encourages people to view attacking or destroying a group of people that you seem as you see as the other as like right. a way that you can live or an expression of your freedom. Well, if someone lives in a place long enough and they get bombarded with this like ethnocidal way of doing things, they may act on it. You know, like for a lot of communities of color, I think there's a general desire to not embrace that like destructive American narrative. So it'll be less likely mm -hmm. that they'll do it, but the probability just increases the more you're in the U S because that's just the narrative that we, we, we put upon people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I mean, it ties into the second part of what you were mentioning at the beginning, right? This con this idea of, that we're having additional conversations, right? To the fact that this happened in a in an Asian community. And also, I mean, Monterey Park, from my incredibly limited knowledge of this area, is actually an area that's known to be unassimilatable. Like it, it remained a largely ethnoburb, which is a cool word, <laughs> used to describe Monterey Park as mostly Chinese, Taiwanese immigrants who just refuse to... It's almost as if like you like cut out a neighborhood from China or Taiwan and just like pasted it into the U.S. is my understanding of this area. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, besides that and the fact that, you know, that's not really included in conversations, there's this other, you know, like people are buffing up the story, right? With, I mean, the really incredibly sad statistic that what, 39 mass shootings and it's only been 25 days into this new year. And you've also yeah. written a lot about how people in in the U.S. often conflate freedom with kind of, but like use an incorrect definition of freedom in America. Like the idea of freedom 
it's almost as if you have the right to oppress others. <laughs> and yeah. it's not funny. It's not funny, but yeah. It's like, a, it's so absurd. It's so absurd that yes. you almost like have to laugh because it just doesn't make any sense. It's like telling people that we live in the upside down and that, you know, yeah. up. And so, yeah, like when Americans talk about freedom, they're, they're saying that they want the freedom to do whatever they want. And that we should trust that since people, for some reason, are just like inherently good, that if someone's left to do whatever they want, they're just going to do good things. Like, that's crazy. Like, that doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense. I think. Yeah, it doesn't. Like another, like a simple way that this isn't freedom, but it's it's like judgment. So like Americans always talk about how they want to be free from being judged. And yeah. that's. You know they want to they want to have that freedom from from judgment, and it's like well that's because they expect people to judge them negatively, like, hmm. and that freedom is like beyond judgment where you get to do whatever you want, and no one can judge you. So now whatever you do is you're just going to decide that it's good, and somebody else's judgment is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. So if if, if that's a, what people start thinking freedom could be, you'll be able to think of stuff as crazy as I, you know, sit believing that going and killing people would be okay because you have decided it on your own and that anybody else's judgment is irrelevant because I want to be right. free and live beyond that judgment. And so, you know, there's just so many different narratives of like how Americans articulate freedom or articulate what they aspire to have when they're free, that just makes it so that they are creating like a logical justification to inflict terror on other people. Like, right. It's, you know, there's a freedom of living apart from people is kind of what we were saying, but not like how you would be free to live amongst people. You know, there's not like a collective, yeah idea of freedom where like for me to be free and for Luna to be free, we have to interact in a particular way so that we can be collectively free. That's not what Americans do. It's much an individual freedom where like Luna's presence and her, and her, the potential for her to judge me about anything at any time, I would then articulate that as something that's like encroaching or preventing my freedom. That's Mm -hmm. nuts. Now that's creating a dynamic where, the presence of other people is something that takes your freedom away. Mm-hmm. So absurd. if you think of something, <laughs> yeah, if you think of something that absurd, it's not that far for someone to make the conclusion. Well, if these people presence, their existence allows them the capacity to judge me, therefore take away my freedom, then an expression of my freedom would then be to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. a very easy logical like progression you could make with America's understanding of freedom. And I don't think most people make that conclusion. Connection. Beca- yeah, exactly. They don't they don't make they don't make that connection and they don't like take those drastic steps, but far too many people do. <laughs> and we we have so much access to deadly weapons that when someone makes that like perfectly logical leap from like how Americans articulate freedom 
we get a mass shooting. And if you live in a country that's 300 plus million people and you can get a gun however you want, people can just make them on their own in their house. It really does increase the likelihood that once a day at a minimum, someone's going to do that logical step of taking the American understanding of freedom to where it, it logically could go and they go shoot mm -hmm. somebody up as an expression of what they consider to be freedom. You know, like it's, it's just a very inevitable thing. And it derives from the fact that Americans articulate a freedom that thrives when it's apart from other people. And we've never really spent time articulating a freedom that thrives when we're with people. And yeah. again, real quick, this clearly connects to ethnocide because yeah. ethnocide is all about that division. And so for white people to be free to be white people, they couldn't mix with black people because if they mix with white black people, they'd have one drop of African blood and that would erase their whiteness entirety. This is the construct that Europeans made for themselves. And so their understanding of freedom had to be one where they're apart from black people forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're good. They're perfectly, they've entitled themselves to use terror to not just like keep African-Americans oppressed from like colonization, chattel slavery, everything, but just make sure that they don't mix at all. So there's already a narrative of using terror as an expression of a freedom to live apart from humanity. You know, as we're trying to be more equitable and just and fair, you have to start coming up with a freedom, a concept of freedom that derives from living amongst and with humanity and other people. And that's just not a thing that the U.S. has uh, embarked on. And these mass shootings are clearly, they derive from that. And that's yeah. just the culture yeah. of the place, which it's weird to say that it's the culture of a place when that place is culture is one that thrives on destroying culture. So it's like another <laughs> linguistic problem. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, we've, yeah. <laughs> I feel like we landed in a good place to kind of conclude here then. Cause I mean, I mean, we we went circular, but it it is circular, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. That the the issue is the destruction of culture, but I mean, the solution is like let's build a better a better culture, you know? Like let's build one where it's our freedom isn't defined by being able to be free away from other people, right? It's a collective freedom. Like, how are we gonna? help each yeah. other how are we going to build community for the future right like what is what does that cultural stance look like what does that mean and i mean i know a lot of people point to japan right when they look at better quote-unquote gun control laws but i mean it's not just about the laws that they have it's that communal culture that they have as well right nobody thinks of guns as like tools of protection they don't need that. They're not going to harm each other. And that's already a proactive step, right? And building a better culture. There's no need. There's no desire to harm somebody or to commit a mass shooting like that, which is why they're so easygoing with 
not easygoing, but it's easy to pass laws or policies that say, you know, nobody is allowed to have a gun or it's harder to access guns and nobody's going to throw a fit because their culture already says, Hey, we're kind of protecting each other. You know, there's no need to escalate to that kind of violence where we would pull a gun on one another. Right. Like Japan's a fascinating example. Cause like culture is your attachment. Culture requires an attachment to the physical place in which you live. And then the people in that place, collectively work together to make the things that they need in order to survive, which that can be physical things such as like the clothes, the food, the houses, but also the philosophies that, that, that they cultivate. Mm -hmm. And Japan's an island. So like, it's really easy. If you're stuck on an island, it's like, all right, we're stuck here. We have to figure something out. We have to figure something out. Like we're not, yeah. it's, it's harder to leave. So we're going to collectively make something cause we're on, we're on this island and you know, there's that great, show in Japan that's on Netflix now where it has the kids doing that rite of passage where their parents send them on an errand all on their own. Uh -huh. Like there's no way you could do that in America. There's just no way. Like everyone would be so scared that that kid would get abducted. We have TV shows that have been very popular that derive from the, the tragic story of a child getting abducted in a grocery store. Like his just went out of his parents sight for five minutes and he disappeared. Like, that's right. our culture where there's no collective anything. You know, a person right. could view their freedom as I would like to have a child and I, I don't have one right now. I want one. So if I see one, I will exercise this freedom where no one can judge me and I'll just take a kid. You know, like it's crazy, but like it's a logical extension of like the individualistic concept of freedom that we have here. And so that's right. what they'll do. If you have a collective understanding of freedom, you wouldn't do that. And that's more of what Japan exactly. has. That's why they, you know, exactly. that's why the kids can walk around freely. That's a, a freedom mm -hmm. of living, you know, amongst, you know, a part of people, not apart from people. And, right. and, right. and so I think for the Asian community, these, these attacks are really fascinating because I think a lot of those cultures do have a narrative of living a, as a part of a community, a part of a culture. And then if you live here long enough, you start embracing the narrative of living apart from a community. And then it's exactly. more likely that you'll do something crazy and attack the community that you used to be, you know, psychologically, culturally yeah. a part of, but now you've mentally right. decided to be apart from it. And so now you can, do whatever you want and you know terrorize people and whatever which it's all ethnocide it's just all ethnocide yeah yeah and so um uh, let's do one fun thing for people who are listening <laughs> and tuning in <laughs> how about you all um either tweet at us or comment on one of our instagram posts um do you say hi to your neighbors because i mean in the u.s and i will be very honest I've only lived in two cities, Denver and DC. And in DC, I lived at, in Petworth, that neighborhood for a little while. And my neighbors would say hi. And I thought that was so strange at first because in Colorado, neighbors never say hi. Maybe there are some neighborhoods where, you know, your neighbors say hi, they wave, they chat up, they chat you up a little bit. But how about you comment on one of our social media posts and let us know or tweet at us. <laughs> 
if you say hi to your neighbors, if you know your neighbors. And yeah, we'll just do a little social experiment to see if. Yeah. If this I'll say I, I'll say I say hi to my neighbors uh, because that's a philosophical practice. Like I understand the collective right. community building component of it. And one thing's cool. I know the names of like my mailman and and like the UPS guy. And so like the people that deliver packages and we're all friends. The UPS guy sees me when he's driving his trunk, he, truck and he honks at me and stuff. And like, yeah. you know, I've kind of helped cultivate a nice little community culture where everyone knows who I am. Um, and so anyways, I think that's a great idea, Luna. And uh, you know, please comment on social media or you know, shoot us an email and uh, there you go. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Barrett. Let, let's, I mean, I hope folks are able to kind of take this language of ethnocide and continue to apply it. Right. Cause I mean, it expands. So it, it just expands the dialogue that we could be having about these mass shootings, about these, these targeted attacks and acts of terrorism towards specific communities. And it just, I feel like not only talks about the solution, but expands potential solutions as well for our future to cultivate better culture. Yeah, I agree. And you can you know, follow our newsletter on Substack where we talk about all the words and all that jazz. Um, all right. I, th I think we're good. Right. Thanks, Barrett. Yeah. 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 Thanks for having this discussion and uh, talk to you later. All right. We'll see you. Bye.